This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. So, uh, welcome again. Good to see you all here. Tonight we discuss Gabriel over the White House with distinguished journalist and author Jeff Greenfield. Really proud and pleased to have him here. As I mentioned in my introduction, Gabriel over the White House is a film that has intrigued you for some time. Can you tell us a little bit about the political frame in which this movie was made and released? Yeah, I stumbled across a reference to this movie, and it just struck me, this is probably the only officially pro-fascist movie Hollywood made. You can, you know, Dirty Harry, Rambo, okay. But this one explicitly says, boy, was this a good idea. And I I went and tried to figure out why. So, uh, Depths of the Great Depression quarter of the country out of work, the banking system collapsing, the farming system collapsing. Hoover has been defeated. There's four months between him leaving and Roosevelt being inaugurated. In those days, it was a four-month interregnum. And it turns out there was a real feeling among respectable people that what was needed was something like a dictatorship. Walter Lippmann, the most distinguished columnist of his time, said to President-elect Roosevelt, you might have to become a benevolent dictator. The New York Herald Tribune, the the voice of Eastern respectable republicanism, said, for dictatorship if necessary. And so it it was a way, when I finally got to see this movie, it was clear that this hunger for somebody to do something about this situation was that great. And I I hadn't seen the movie in a while. It strikes me some of the um, rhetoric of the president is not that far from FDR's. Bold action... Uh, you know, the, the whole first hundred days before the New Deal, save the banking system, save the farmers, put the unemployed to work. And it's not an accident that Roosevelt actually liked the movie. Um, he didn't want to be Judson Hammond. And it, it just struck me that, that if you're trying to explain to people how desperate were the straits that the most powerful publisher in America, William Randolph Hearst, then a big Roosevelt supporter, would, would finance this movie and want it made, it, tell, it just tells you something. Well, one of the interesting things is that although the film received mixed rea- reactions in the press, and we talked a little bit about that because you read the review, I think it was a New York Times yeah. review from the time, um, but it was among the most popular films in 1933. But since that time, um, it, the film is unfamiliar to most people. And especially in scholars who are interested, in, for instance, in American film history, there's so little written about it. I was uh, showed it in a class recently, trying to find reading in the most recent kind of scholarly analysis of the of the film, its relationship to the novel, and so on, was from 1976. So why do you think that is? Well, the the person who revived some interest is Jonathan Alter, the journalist, in his book about Roosevelt's first days, called The Defining Moment spends a lot of time talking about this movie. He's like the first person in a while to do that. And I think the reason is, when, if you think about it, the movie's made in late 32, and it comes out in April of 33. Hitler was still the leader of a coalition government. He only just about then began to assume the power of a dictator. Uh, Stalin's depredations were not that well known, and there was still a part of the American literati that thought the Soviet Union was a cool place. And Mussolini was the guy that made the trains run on time. Now, once we get through World War II and the Cold War, 
and the success that FDR had in, with the help of World War II, getting us out of the Depression without a dictatorship, the idea of celebrating a dictatorship does not seem particularly attractive anymore because we see the, 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 the consequences of it. And I do think that's a, a big reason why this movie kind of went into, into obscurity. Um, but I, I couldn't agree with you more. If you're looking, again, for, for an explanation of the, of the feeling back then that something had to be done, um, even at the cost of, of breaking with our system, this is a pretty good place to start. Well, let's talk a little bit about the Walter Houston character. Uh, you know, as you were just saying in the, a minute ago, that he's, Hammond is a divinely inspired combination of democratic, republican, socialist, and fascist ideals. His far-flung uh, public works programs predates FDR's New Deal. Um, the death squads owe, owe more to Hitler or Mussolini. I mean, it's kind of shocking, the death squads. Um, yeah. Uh, although the ridiculous little um, tanks. Um, Hammond's meant to be a politically incorrect man of action. What do you make of the film's mix of politics and the way it constructs this central character? You should remember that fascism, before it took on the, the, um, the worst aspects, genocide, National Socialism, that was the name of the Nazi party. And the, the idea of fascism was that all the, all the different elements of society, capital, labor, farm, intellectuals, would get together bound by the government. That's what a facile is. It's a bunch of stalks of wheat bound together. Um, and in this case, you do have both those strains. I mean, his, his, speech is, his speech to the unemployed in Baltimore, which, you know, you could imagine uh, Aaron Sorkin back then writing some of that, um, is an appeal, broadly speaking, certainly to populism. You know, the indictment of the powers that be when he addresses the Congress. That is classic populist stuff. You, the elites, have failed. Um, the darker side of it is what in many cases, uh, look, what are we seeing now in places like Turkey, Poland, Hungary, Russia, China, with the re- repeal of term limits now? In a lot of those cases, the, the, the strong man, the man on horseback, is telling his people, I will, I will bring us back to glory and save you from our enemies. What we learned in the decades since is that's often a way of saying those guys, the cosmopolitans, the Jews, the intellectuals, whoever they are. But that mix is what makes populism sometimes a very potent weapon. It's grievance, often legitimate, uh, but used in a way that distorts and ultimately perverts the goal. Well, you mentioned Will, uh, William Randolph's Hearst role in this film, that he, he uh, subsidizes Cosmopolitan Pictures, his company that mm-hmm. really was making most of the films, you know, lighter comedies and musical right. fare for his uh, paramour, Marion Davis. And so he, but he wants to make this film. What can you tell us about his involvement and Hearst's own politics? Yeah, you know, if you're a film studies person, you probably know Hearst as the model for Citizen Kane. Right. Uh, okay. But in the early days, Hearst was very much a man of the left. He'd run for mayor of New York. You, remember, you know the scene in Citizen Kane where Kane runs for office and he loses and the headline is fraud at the polls? Well, Hearst ran for mayor of New York. Um, I think that's right. Many in the early part of the 20th century. I think he was, his father was a, was a politician. And Hearst had a very liberal, progressive bent, you know, public ownership of transportation, of streetcars. 
uh, he, was, he was heavily involved with the effort of Roosevelt to get the 1932 Democratic nomination. There was a big fight among the Democrats, and Hearst was a significant political player who helped get Roosevelt nominated through his support to him completely. By the end of Roosevelt's term, he was a, you know, a bitter enemy. And, and so the idea of this movie, in part, was Hearst's way of saying to Roosevelt, you need to take very strong action, and a way of saying to the country, We've got to have, you've got to have faith in, in a president, no matter what he asks for, he's going to need it. And he was a very key player. The story about this is that when the movie was screened, the other partner, MGM, Louis B. Mayer, who was very conservative, uh, said to one of his aides, I want this movie locked up. Put it in a can and hide it. Uh, this obviously did not happen. The movie made, uh, I think, a $200,000 profit, which back then, and today it's craft services, but you know, back then, that was a, a reasonable sum of money. Um, and it reminds us, actually, that at many times through American history, powerful media people, newspaper owners, radio and TV station owners, internet players, whatever, have often played a pretty big political role. Well, speaking about having faith in the presidency, could we talk a little bit about the role of religion in this film? Um, we know that the angel Gabriel is a messenger from God entrusted to deliver special important messages. So what do, what do you make of his religious awakening? I think that I, my own view of this is that that is a, is a device that ought not to be overstated, particularly because we have seen in recent um, decades here and in other places leaders who claim they are essentially enacting God's will. Uh, I don't think this is, and you'll notice, I mean, obviously it's a different time. There is no reference to any religious movement in the country. There's no reference to an army of the, of the godly that join up. It's strictly a one-on-one relationship between uh, the president and the curtains. Uh, yeah, it's really, you know, there's no, spe- the special effects budget on this movie is not high. Uh, and, and how uh, his confidential secretary comes to the conclusion that Gabriel has entered him is, is, is a, that's a deus, you should pardon the pun, that is really a deus ex machina. It's like, where did she come up with that? How did she figure out that it was Gabriel, there's no trumpet. Um, but there's that know, subtle breeze. You know, that yeah, curtain, I guess, but, it, but I really do think it was the way, all right, how am I going to, what am I going to do? And also in terms of, the, of the, the story, what's the easiest way to convince an audience that he's on the right side? Well... But in the end, he, you know, the, the spirit leaves him. Well, because he's, he starts his work is done. Yeah. I mean, look, he's put everybody to work. He's killed all the monsters, and he's brought about world peace. What's left? That's true. Um, yeah. Traffic? I mean, it's, yeah. that's it. He's gone, and the president you know, calls her by her first name again at the end, right. and, and that's it. Well, in the film, the president acts on, uh, he acts based on strong personal ideology without concern for voter approval. It's just an assumption that the people are behind him. What does this say about the fantasy of the ideal politician, and how has this evolved over time? Uh, Let's just confine this to the United States. Um, There's always been an attraction for, pardon the gender, for the man on horseback, free from the corrupting influences of politics. It's kind of interesting that back in the, I find it interesting, that one of the leading candidates for president back a hundred and so years ago was Henry Ford. 
because the idea was he knows how to get things done. Um, that was Ross Perot's appeal. I'm not a politician. I know how to get things done. There's a great moment in the first debate where, some, where one of the journalists asked him, you've had no experience. And Perot says, that's right. I've had no experience running up a $5 trillion debt. It's the ultimate kind of political judo. And it may occur to you that our current president's claim to uh, the, the office was, I'm not one of these people. I know how to get things done. I'm not prisoner of their, their methods. I will, I, will get, I will get that done. And among his supporters, that was a, a powerful appeal. I would mention one other thing, which I was too dense to see, but my wife did, just as Trump was announcing. She binge-watched three or four hours of The, of the Apprentice. Mm-hmm. And she said, you know what? You watch him on The Apprentice. He's a decisive executive leader. And you have to remember, because of the success of that show, more Americans knew what Trump had done, at least in that fictitious setting, than any of the other Republicans running for president. So there is, there is that appeal. What we have been lucky about uh, so far, and uh, as journalists like to say, Patrice, only time will tell, as we have not ever fused that with the kind of politics of grievance, of division, of polarization, of if you're not on my side, you're not the opponent, but the enemy. I realize there are people who look at what is going on today and have their questions, but you know we were very lucky in this country that while Hitler was amassing dictatorial power, Roosevelt was proceeding another way. And I do want to point out one other thing. 1937, Roosevelt's just been elected in a historic landslide. Super majorities in the Congress. I mean, three to one. The Supreme Court keeps telling him you can't do what you want to do. The NRA, not the Rifle Association, the National Recovery Administration, unconstitutional. The Agriculture Plan, unconstitutional. So what does Roosevelt propose? He says, you know what? For every justice over the age of 70, I think the president should get to appoint another one, up to, I think it might be as many as 15. And that, of course, would have given him the majority of justice. Well, you know what? His vice president said no. The congressional leaders of his own party said no. And the, the so-called court packing plan went down to defeat. So even at that point, even with Roosevelt at the peak of his popularity, with the country still in a, in a pretty bad mess, the structures we had did not permit him to do that. Well, let me turn to it. This is a, I want to read this quote. It's a little long. It's not that long. Don't worry. But I, I wanted to refl- have you reflect on, on a recent article in The Guardian from a couple of weeks ago uh, proposed that, and I quote, as head of state, the president is a figurehead of sorts, the personification of a national aspiration and mindset at any given moment. Dwight Eisenhower's military persona at the height of the Cold War, Kennedy's youth and glamour in the 60s, Obama's global upbringing and multiracial identity following a period of diplomatic isolation and racial division were all carefully crafted images that chimed with the times, end quote. So what does our first reality TV president tell us about our own times, and how might Gabriel over the White House help us analyze the Trump presidency? I kind of figured we'd get around to that. <laughs> first of all, I have to point out this is a, this is a particular hobby horse of mine. The phrase carefully crafted is one of the most overused cliches of any political journalist. It's like a way of saying, I see what's going on. 
you know, in a carefully crafted political campaign, in a carefully crafted photo opportunity. You know, you want a carelessly crafted one? So I'm, I'm less than overwhelmed by that. I mean, presidents have been shaping their image at least, at least since Andrew Jackson, whose hickory poles were his symbol. Um, you know the famous Bob Newhart routine about Abe Lincoln and his political advisor? Abe, write the speech on the back of an envelope. His image as a rail splitter was carefully crafted. He was a railroad lawyer after. But in a populist America, you don't get elected being a railroad or corporate lawyer. So you keep that image. So that's the first thing. Um, Okay, that's my hobby horse. Um, As I said, I think part of... There are two things that I think are relevant here. One is, as I mentioned, the image of Trump... It's so uh, obviously penetrated that I would call it a carelessly crafted as a builder, the guy that gets things done. Um, But more important for his people, uh, the very very things that drive his critics nuts is is an attraction. I I didn't have the brains to go to Ladbrook in London and bet a lot of money on Trump. But I did write, like, at the start of the campaign, mm-hmm. one of the weird things about this guy is that everything we think is a bug is a feature. <laughs> what I mean by that, the vulgarity. Well, that just proves he's not talking that mamby-pamby Washington talk. He talks like I talk. The flaunting of the wealth. First, as somebody said, he's a poor person's idea of what a rich person lives like. The um, utter lack of familiarity with anything remotely related to public policy and legislation. He's free of that corrupt system. He's not part of the swamp. And you know what? And this, I think, is really important. If you come out of the last 15 years, you start in 2000 when the big debate was, what are we going to do with the surplus? We're going to have a $5 trillion surplus down the road. Should we pay off the national debt, cut taxes? What should we do? So in the last 15 years, you've had, a disaster, you've had a disastrous war in Iraq, followed by the worst economic situation in the Great Depression. So when somebody says to a Trump supporter, but he, he doesn't, he, he's no expert, the response is, what have the experts done? And one of the things, that ta- one of the things you need for the rise of a populist demagogue is legitimate grievances. And I think that's what I think that's the thing that a lot of people who who can't believe Trump is president, who turn on CNN and MSNBC every night waiting for the indictments to come down, you know, who are who are just obsessed with this rush, you know, any minute now, are they are still not focusing on the fact that there is a core of real grievance that led to the fact that Trump was able to draw to an inside straight and get to the presidency. Um, to anticipate, uh, David Frum, very smart conservative writer, very hostile to Trump, wrote a piece, I think, in The Atlantic a while ago about, about how we would get to an authoritarian system. And it's, it's much more subtle than what we saw. Uh, I am more optimistic than that, but I agree that the jury's out. And the reason is that the polarization, which has divided us politically, 
to the point we, as to use the cliche, we're almost like tribes. The question is, if this president were to take a similar step to what Nixon did in 1973 when he fired the special prosecutor, would his own party say, you've crossed the line? Because that's what, that's what, keeps, that's what keeps us, I think, and has kept us from even the danger. I, I'm, I'm going to go on one more second. No, I mentioned Roosevelt and the corn packet, cord packing. In the Korean War, when the steel workers went on strike, Harry Truman tried to seize the steel wheels and put the army to work. He said, look, come on, we've got to have steel, we've got to have weapons. The Supreme Court said, you can't do that. Um, when, Nick, when the Supreme Court said to Nixon, turn over those tapes, he turned over those tapes. Uh, when the independent counsel said to Clinton, you've got to come and sit down and talk about some very awkward things, he sat down and talked about those things. Um, and one of the interesting what-ifs, I write alternative history in my spare time, is if Nixon, if the political reality of today was what it was in 73 with a Republican Congress and a counter-media like Fox and company saying the whole investigation is a fraud, what would have happened then? I don't know. So tell us more about your work on alternate history. For those of you in the audience who may not be aware, alter, alternate histories are what some call... You have not all bought all my books? You, well, this is, your, this, is, this is your opportunity to... to okay, okay. This, but, but I can do this without... You know, you don't even have to go on Kindle and find them. This, this is what I... And Roosevelt, by the way, is a key to this. Not in my books. One of the things that fascinated me from the moment I got involved in political work and then political coverage is how much history, I write this often, history does not turn on a dime. It turns on a plugged nickel. The smallest things have led to the biggest consequences. Uh, In early 1933, Franklin Roosevelt is president-elect. He goes to Bayfront Park in Miami to hold a rally. Giuseppe Zangara, a deranged anarchist, shows up at that rally with a loaded uh, pistol. But he gets there five minutes late, crowds bigger than he thinks, and he has to stand on a chair to take a shot. And somebody, see, a bystander sees him, knocks him, jostles him. He doesn't kill Roosevelt, but he does kill the visiting mayor of Chicago, Anton Chermak. So if Zangara gets there five minutes early, we don't have a President Roosevelt. We have a President John Nance Garner, a crusty, reactionary Texas politician with no appetite for things like a New Deal. If you know the, if you know the book or series, anybody see or watch Man in the High Castle? Okay, it posits a Nazi victory. You don't know, it's very subtle, but the reason that happens is that Roosevelt is assassinated and we don't have the leadership we need. One other example. It's uh, late 1960. And this is all true. And uh, John Kennedy's working on his inaugural speech in Palm Beach. Parked outside the family house is a retired postal worker named Richard Pavlik, sitting in a car, holding a switch connected to eight sticks of dynamite. Secret Service takes no notice of this. And his plan is when Kennedy leaves the compound, gets in his car, he's going to ram the car and blow him up. Jackie comes to the door to see him off. And Pavlik being deranged, but I don't know, civil, says, I don't want to do this in front of the family. And four days later, he's arrested. Suppose Jackie doesn't come to the door. 
The Secret Service chief said we were seconds away from a disaster. And in one of my books deals with this, and you have Lyndon Johnson running the Cuban Missile Crisis instead of John Kennedy. And at the risk of spoiling my plot, it does not go well. (laughs) And you have these incidents over and over, not just life and death, but over and over again where, you know, the smallest ones. I did, I did do one about John Kennedy surviving Dallas. You know what the key to that is? The weather. It had rained, mm-hmm. and the bubble top was on the car. But as Kennedy landed in Dallas, the sun came out. And to his, the great delight of the White House, the bubble top came off so he could be seen and cheered by the crowds, because that was important politically. That bubble stop t- pop t- stays on. <coughs> the odds are much greater that he survives. That's what fascinates me about this stuff. And there's... There are examples, they go back as far as Alexander the Great, and they are as recent as, suppose Bill Clinton hadn't jumped out of his airplane, walked across the tarmac to say hello to Attorney General Loretta Lynch in her plane at the time when his wife was under investigation, which is why James Comey was the effective person in charge, which is why he was the guy who got two weeks before, ten days before the election, to say, oh, by the way, we're reopening uh, this investigation. So... You can see why, or I hope you can see why this stuff I find so fascinating and why whenever I read my colleagues say, here's what's going to happen in the midterms. You know, <laughs> man plans, God laughs. Well, and obviously, and I think very importantly, the emphasis, your interest is in contingency, that these yes. things aren't all determined or that we can run all kinds of models, but there's, there is such a thing as contingency in history. But I wonder, do you, do you see Gabriel over the White House as an alternate history? Told in a film medium, not in... Uh, does, it, does it give us a kind of counterfactual... Um, or, or in some ways it's prescient of what was to come. Um, yeah, yeah. I, I, you know what? I think, I think it's halfway there. But the difference is, when I do alternate history, uh, I, I try to account for what I think is plausible... Now, it's writing an alternate history where this guy wins and therefore everything works out right. That's not real history. I mean, that's not, that's not real fake history. Um, it certainly shows, it, it, it shows what the appetite in the country was for someone who would have been different. You know, I've always wondered if Huey Long had not been assassinated in 1935, he was going to run against Roosevelt. Uh, for the, uh, I think for the Democratic nomination. And in 1936, there was still 17% of the country out of work. Uh, and Huey Long had much more of a tendency toward being a dictator. When he was governor of Louisiana, he basically ran a, you know, a, a dictatorship. So in that sense, I think it's a, good, it's a good point. It's just that... Here's one quick... One of the things I did was imagine if, if Gore had beaten Bush, which would have happened if Alien Gonzalez had drowned and there would have been no Cuban fight that cost Gore 20,000 votes in Florida. It doesn't go well for Gore in my alternate history. It's not, it's not, you know, I know that among some people, oh, if only he'd been president, we wouldn't have had this, and we wouldn't have stopped 9-11. Not so fast. Um, you have to account for other things. I mean, one of mine, where I worked for Bobby Kennedy the last year of his life, and I've, you know, at a therapy, I wrote one where he survives and lives, but... <laughs> There's a guy who worked for Bobby Kennedy who, in my alternate history, performs, pulls off his own Watergate because he had some pretty sketchy people working for him. 
So that's what I mean. That's a little long-winded. So I, I, can't, I don't think it's like, oh, I see. If Roosevelt had gone this way and abolished Congress, we would have had, you know, no. I don't buy that. I just wonder at the time if it was really received as a kind of, as you said, there's a great desire for change. It's a Hollywood fiction. Yeah. There was all kinds of, you know, uh, controversy over it. It was very, very popular. So obviously this kind of man taking control, the kind of undemocratic, but right. uh, clearly the only person who's sane in the room. And if you read the inaugural address and his speeches, there are, it struck me there are a couple of lines from Judson's talk that come very close to what Roosevelt talked about. He talked about bold executive action. He talked about you know, things that hadn't been done before. But he didn't abolish the Congress. Of course, he didn't have to. <laughs> right. Well, you've written about political, other political films and media. I thought we should spend just a little time talking about um, films and, and other media forms, television, things that interest you that are focused on the U.S. presidency. I mean, which political film and television shows do you find most illuminating today or in the recent past or at okay. any time? Okay, no, I get it, but may, these may surprise you. Okay, I'm ready. Uh, one of them is Veep. Veep, because as people in Washington will tell you, it is obviously not realistic in the West Wing sense. It is meta-realistic. Mm-hmm. The kind of behavior that drives these people to do what they do is very familiar in Washington. And if you know the, the show, part of the joy of it is listening to Julia Louis-Dreyfus curse like a sailor. But the, other, but the more fun is, you know, there are people in Washington who just talk about their offices and they say, that guy's a real Jonah. If you know Veep, you will understand. Um, the, the kind of obsessiveness with power and whose desk is nearer who, that's very real. Another movie <laughs> that probably almost none of you have heard of is called Idiocracy. Anybody know that movie? Wait. All right, that's about three more than I thought. This is a movie made by Mike Judge of Beavis and Butthead fame and now I guess Silicon Valley about a uh, rather dull-witted soldier put to sleep in an experiment, and they forget about him, and he wakes up 500 years later. And the thesis of the movie is that the stupid people have outbred the smart people so that this guy is now the smartest person in America. <laughs> but the way, the, the way things work or don't work in idiocracy, I'm, I'm, more and more I'm beginning to think it was a documentary. Um, <laughs> I am not a particular. I was a, not a fan of House of Cards because I thought it jumped the shark by the second or third season. It just didn't make a lot of sense to me. Uh, the West Wing. When I was a consultant on Aaron Sorkin's newsroom, and when the first time we met, I said, "I, I know what you do. You write wet dreams for liberals." Uh, forgive me, but you know it, it, that's the fantasy. Uh, there is. I don't know if any of you had a slight little echo here, but when, when. Uh, the president convinces the country or the Congress with a speech. That's every Hollywood screenwriter's po- political movie because they're writers. Right. <laughs> and they believe if you just give the right speech, you know, the, the worst political movie I've seen in 100 years is The Contender, much as I like Jeff Bridges. And in that movie, he gets up before an opposition congressman and says, you have stained, you have stained this body. And they applaud. Okay. No, that's not what happened. You get up and tell people they're immoral, horrible, immoral people, they'll impeach you. But, but I think the other political movie that I really, really liked was Dave. Yeah. Because once again, it touched on a kind of reality. 
in that the, the, the Kevin, well, he's two Kevin Klein, but the Kevin Klein character, who's the hero, is just trying to figure out why do we have to behave this way? And my favorite scene in the movie is when Charles Grodin, who is an accountant, comes in and Dave shows him the federal budget. And Grodin says, you know, if I, if I, if I did my businesses this way, we'd be in jail. <laughs> and there's something to that. Um, you know, look, there are plenty of other political movies. Uh, remember the movie Z, the Costa Gavras movie? It's not an American movie. The Lives of Others about Stasi in East Germany, very powerful movie. Um, but those are, those are some. Well, with that, I want to, we'll close things up. But please uh, join me in thanking Jeff Greenfield for taking the time to be here with us tonight. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.